Low back pain is the most common cause of work-related disability. And yet, too often we don't realize how important is exercise to prevent and heal it. This chat with Paul Bielak, movement coach and expert in back mechanics, is a great opportunity to talk about that and be inspired. Hi everybody and welcome to the first interview of my project Vibes in Action. I'm so excited today to be here with my friend and colleague Paul Bielak from Prague. Uh, hello, hello Paul. Thanks for Thank being so here. For I'm very happy to have you here for the first interview of, uh, of this project. Um, Paul is uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, he is the founder of uh, Advanced Training in Prague, but he is also a, a martial art athlete uh, and he's a personal coach. Um, so I think it will be very, very interesting to dive into his story. Uh, I think it's very fascinating. So I, I really would start, Paul, with you. Uh, with this question, as I've just said, uh, you're doing so many things. I think you are a multi-passionate professional. So how do you introduce yourself with, with people? Uh, how you define yourself? Coach, entrepreneur, or what else? Coach, entrepreneur, or what else? I suppose um, I help people facilitate empowerment, and I try to get the best I can out of them and try to facilitate their personal growth is the way I would frame it. I think um, from, a, from a place of upbringing, I am a martial arts geek that got into mm -hmm. fitness and then started to study the science, um, got hurt along the way and um, learned a, a little bit of rehabilitation. And, and that whole continuum of experience over 31 years has brought me here today uh, at my 41st year of age okay okay um so I, I really would like to step in immediately uh to one element which i think is the most fascinating one uh in your let's say professional slash personal experience um so you are a martial arts expert uh and you really have followed your passions uh throughout different places in in the world uh so let's share with us please a bit about how martial arts are important in your life as an entrepreneur as a coach as a dad as well uh and maybe why it was so important for you to follow your passion uh like a kind of globe trotter right that's that's a great question actually um, so at about seven or eight, I um, told my mom what I wanted to be, and that was uh, samurai. You know, okay. obviously I had read some some book or uh, saw some film, and I was um, immediately attracted to mainly their sort of unrelentless focus and direction and drive and purpose and uh, a seeming mastery of self. And this was this really attracted me. 
Um, as a kid, I was, you know, really uh, kind of average, weak, skinny, pushed around, bullied a bit. Um, I grew up at the time in communist Poland. And okay. um, when the regime fell, uh, we moved out. I was 10 years old and we moved to Canada, which was a huge paradigm shift for me, uh, sure. culturally changing language. And again, being the outsider, getting bullied and pushed around because I was weird. Um, so in essence, I told my mom, <clears throat> I want to be a samurai. She said, why don't you just try being a doctor or a lawyer? Or, you know, <laughs> it makes sense. I think, you know? <laughs> Get a good education. And um, God bless her soul. She put up with me over the years. And I've tried various things. I was in police foundations uh, at 19. Have you ever seen the um, old comedy movie, uh, Police Academy? Yeah, sure, sure. It's All a right. kind of masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. so that was the exact school and campus I went to in Toronto. Oh, wow. It's actually Humber College. Okay, uh, that's where nice. Saw and so, and I went from this to randomly being handed a contract to go and become a fashion model in Tokyo. Okay, wow. Okay. Completely different world, right? Okay, so sure. I heard this. And I immediately thought Mecca. So, so obviously Japan and Tokyo was a Mecca for what I was doing and what I was uh, already participating in my martial arts. Um, I started immediately when I arrived in Canada. So from 10 years onwards, I was training in martial arts obsessively. And okay. I'll let you get what was the uh, culminating moment. Uh -huh. My parents visited somebody and they wanted to get rid of me for a little while as a little kid, right? In the conversation. So they put okay. me in a separate room and they played blood sport for me oh remember blood sport not not Don't really but i i've heard something about it but but tell me something so more about that one of the one of the cheesiest 80s classics ever okay which is still one of the best um and so my life changed instantly you know i okay. wanted to be frankie um and so this obviously went well with this sort of paradigm of getting pushed around and being weak and, and so on because a lot of it was about sort of projection of what I wanted to be into the future, as everybody does. Okay. Now, at 19, when I came home and I said, Mom, uh, I've just been given a contract to go to Tokyo and, and, and you know, be a model. Uh, as you can imagine, she wasn't pleased with mm, my decision. I can't I imagine. To her that education is something that I intend to continue moving on with for the rest of my life, whether it's in school or outside of school. There's no question about that. Um, but that this was a life experience that uh, somebody was handing me uh, pretty much for free. and. Uh, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, sort of going with the flow when life uh, changes. Sure. A train were, were, was passing for you, so. Yeah. yeah. And, and so after this, you know, I spent 10 years there. And after this, I went into a um, mechanical uh, technician program. Actually, firstly, uh, business management and then the mechanical technician program in uh, Humber College, which is actually a CNC design and manufacturing program with machine shop and, and math and, and so on. It's kind of like a step before engineering. So uh -huh. uh, that, even though I've only <clears throat> done the schooling and worked for four years in that area, later allowed me to understand biomechanics a lot better. Oh, sure. See life just sort of flows and you go in different oh. directions. But there was that common theme of, you know, wanting to have and find a purpose that was greater than sure. me and become of service to something that was really important. And that for me today is the uh, development of individuals and having some positive influence on their lives, which sure. in turn um, changes the world in general. Sure. No, it, it makes perfectly sense to me because, because me as well, I've had so different kinds of uh, experiences 
uh, in Italy and then abroad and different kind of jobs as well. And, you know, at that precise moment, you have the sensation that maybe you are, you're, you're going too far to your passion, maybe you're losing time. But then, you know, at least for me, uh, every time comes a moment where you have the, the sensation of connecting the dots, you know? And, right. you know, and, and so maybe no time is really wasted. Um, if you do it with with passion, or at least with uh, with the sense of uh, of building up something, uh, no, I, I, it totally makes sense uh, to me. That, that that's very nice to, to have this thing in common as well. And and listen, yeah, tell me. No, that's just you know a thought just popped into my mind. That actually just ties into your original question. So how does martial arts tie into yeah. you know what I do today? Well, martial arts is everything. It's life. It's it's um, facing adversity, it's overcoming your fear, it's, it's literally overcoming the fight or flight response of your nervous system when you're uh, faced with a threat, right? Which was very sure. interesting to me since I was very afraid when I was young. Um, so, so for me, it was a cultivation of self, but also, you know, it doesn't matter what discipline it is. It doesn't matter if you play piano or if you do martial arts or mm -hmm. if you do the ball. Um, when you get amazing at something because you've put in thousands of hours, that the learning that you get from that on a personal level can now be transferred to anything that you decide to do in life. You know, and I see this time and time again, the people that, that went and grew up in our martial arts school, they became successful in anything that, that they uh, uh, endeavored later on in life. So, um, you know, whether they became uh, lawyers and, or scholars or sure. uh, PhD professors or whether they, 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 become, they became a realtor. You know? No, no, no. And, and, you know, again, it's... Um... It's pretty nice to me because now it comes to, to, to my memory. Uh, the fact that, you know, I, I see a link with, with my path as well, again, because, you know, I've been a, a soccer referee. Uh, I've been a soccer referee for eight years. Uh, I reached a kind of uh, national level in Italy. So I, I really uh, went all around Italy uh, with all these matches and, and, you know, it's really something which is based on a lot of passion. It can be so hard. It can be so hard because you are alone and you really need to, to face and to deal with a lot of different situations. Uh, and, and you really feel the only one on one side and all the others are against you and you need to control yourself. And you, and you need to work on yourself. Uh, but then you have little by little this little... This, uh, feeling this sensation of growing and uh and, and still now i i think i i've stopped 15 years ago something like that uh but i still feel that that kind of experience was a kind of metaphor uh of, of my real life today and it's something where i really can take something away uh and i think i'm i'm stronger or or at least i'm i've grown up a bit more and better thanks to that experience so i really can understand you and that's very nice and and uh, listen in terms of the places uh, you have lived in because it's uh, it was poland at the beginning if if i'm not wrong so then then canada toronto uh, then japan but you even had an experience in in brazil right 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 so, so my question—it's so fascinating to me, and and I already told you this. 
Um, but uh, is there something from each one of these places that you took with you? That, that, that's the question, just out of curiosity. You know, this different right. kind right. Of, uh, of, I think, social approach and just right. curious about that. Right, right. You said it. Um, social approach. Well, as you can imagine, places like uh, Japan and Brazil are alpha, omega, very different in culturally. Um, can imagine. Very different, very different uh, characteristics or behavioral traits are valued differently, right? So um, give, giving you a simple example, um, in Japan, you know, sort of respect and honor and, um, you know, being uh, uh, appropriate and fair. Uh, are highly valued, you know, and, and the opposite being looked down at. Um, in Brazil, there are times when you're, you come across a bit more murky ground where um, what, what they would call malicia um, mm -hmm. or, or malice or malandrage, magic, you know, is, is, okay. it's almost like malice or tricking someone is put into the magical realm. And okay. it's, it's seen in the martial arts as well. So um, you see the value system shifts a little bit all of a sudden. It's, it's about being smart. It's about outsmarting um, whoever that you're, you're dealing with. And I'm not saying that, you know, Brazilians don't have fundamentally strong values that are positive. I'm just saying that sure. culturally, the, the perception of um, something like being direct and honest versus being a little bit sneaky is perceived differently in different circumstances, right? Um, from the Polish side, you know, Polish history, if you look at it, is very brutal. Okay. So one of the things I took from my Polish predecessors and the Polish history in general is the ability to basically build up from the ground up at any mm -hmm. point in life if okay. there comes destruction and ruin and waste and um, horror. And that's something that, that I think is really important for a lot of people trying to get over trauma. So if you look at what happened to Warsaw in the Second World War, I mean, it was leveled. And so... Yeah. When I speak to some of my CEO clients who enjoy working in uh, Poland, I ask them, why, why do you enjoy the Polish team so much? And they say, well, because these people have this innate sort of drive to achieve anything I put in front of them. And their answer is always, yes, we will. And it doesn't matter how unreasonable. It's just, yes, we will. We don't know how. We'll find a way. We'll do it. We'll execute and we'll, we'll rebuild. And um, that's, that's a sort of like national character. I think um, that, that I, I took very proudly from my own culture. The transition between Poland and uh, Canada was really fascinating because I went from literally a communist environment where I had um, a, um, you know, every day I was wearing a uniform in school and I showed up and I sat in my first day of grade five in, in Toronto and I put my hands on the table and my ruler and book were 90 degrees to one another Everything was aligned a certain way. And the kids beside me, are, you know, they got their feet up, crossed arms, <laughs> eating potato chips, like barely listening to the teacher, right? So this was a huge culture shock for me and a, and a sure. very big shift in, uh, you know, social understanding of, of hierarchy and so on, right? So, so it, it, seems, it, it seems a bit a stereotype, but probably it was true. You are a witness of this. Right, absolutely. Well, stereotypes are there for a reason, right? Every culture okay. has certain historical context which influences the way that the people behave and think. There's sure. no question about this. You can see it everywhere, right? Um, stereotypes are there for a reason, not that we're slaves to them. We, we have the, the prefrontal cortex and the ability to <laughs> make executive decisions for what we want in life, but sure. nevertheless, there are characteristics and traits. Um, 
So, so Canada, you know, uh, I, I consider myself more Canadian than anything today because I grew up okay. there and I spent my teenage years there. So obviously uh, that, that has a very heavy influence culturally, um, you know, music, uh, TV, uh, certain, certain memes and certain things, you know, being a child of the 90s, um, there's, there's a lot of uh, nuance there, obviously. Sure. But Canada, you know, in general, uh, is a very, very uh, nice place to live. It's, um, you know, very free culture. Uh, we're used to uh, multiculturalism and, you know, we're used to making fun of each other without people taking offense, which is really nice, you know. Sure, sure. And, okay, and uh, so what about Brazil? Is something, because I know that you had a very interesting experience even in terms of uh, sports there. Just, just a few words about that, yeah. because again, well, it's something so curious and, and fascinating to me. Yeah, well, actually, Brazil came about through Japan. So um, let's go to Japan first for a second. Yeah, so I'm 19 sure. years old. I, I fly out. I basically get a contract for modeling and a plane ticket. And I fly out and I met by my agency. And basically, they, uh, they show me to my apartment and I've arrived at my Mecca. They make me sign a bunch of papers that I will not do contact sports. Um, oh. And of course, you know, the first thing I do, I go and I find myself a dojo. So, so basically in Japan, I was not only learning the Japanese martial arts, the classic Japanese martial arts, which I had already had a 10 year experience uh, uh, practicing in Toronto, but um, also capoeira. I actually met a guy at a casting who was teaching capoeira in Tokyo. Through him, I met my Japanese Oh, teacher. okay. And okay. I trained there, you know, uh, between Japanese sword class and karate and everything else that I was doing, I was running back and forth to capoeira class, you know, four times a week. Um, basically, I realized that in order to get good at anything, I had to put in the time. Mm -hmm. There was no way, you know, to, to skip the hours that were necessary. And so I asked my Japanese teacher, um, you know, where in Brazil did you go? Maybe if I spent some time there, you know, I would, I would accumulate a certain amount of hours in practice. Um, he picked up the phone and he called our master. And, um, and, and he says, Mr. Des, you know, could, we, could I send the student over? He's really keen and he's consistent. Um, could he stay with you for some time? And basically the guy just says, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll pick him up at the airport. So I, I got a plane ticket and I flew to Brazil. I arrived. <clears throat> they didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak a word of Portuguese. I had a, uh, you know, a dictionary in my hand and obviously coming from a Slavic language background it, you know Portuguese is alpha omega on the opposite side of the spectrum yeah um, so I got out of the you know I got out of the plane and I, and I saw my master's wife I said oh bom dia senora uh, she just gave me a clap and said hey senora nada ven conmigo she threw me in the car <laughs> and, uh, and that was it she just started talking my head off and we went to live in Itaguaí Costa Verde which is uh, about an hour and a half out of Rio de Janeiro Wow, wow, it's, it's so nice. And then Prague. And then Prague. So um, Prague is the last, uh, last place I decided to settle. Um, Prague, you know, you, there is no Prague without Japan. Yeah. I actually met my wife in okay. 2002 on a job in Osaka. Oh, uh, wow. We were both with people, with different people at the time. Okay. There were sparks immediately. And we, we didn't capitalize on those sparks for six years. But okay. the seed had been planted, and I showed up six years later in Prague with uh, an engagement ring in my pocket. 
Wow. Um, so, it's kind of kind of a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In That's many nice. ways, uh, I'm, I'm in awe with um, what, what life decided to do with me. And the older I get, the less I feel like it's my decisions. Uh, and the more I feel it's some sort of strange fate. That, that's nice, that's nice. And listen, to, to jump in the, in the main topic of today's interview and today's uh, chat. Um, so you're now a personal coach, a personal trainer, and uh, uh, if I'm not wrong, your specialty, one of your specialties, uh, probably the, the most important one, is dealing with back pain, right? Um, so my first question for, for our audience, I think would be very, very interesting for them to, to know something more about this. Why as a professional in this field, you think that, uh, back mechanics are so important for, for people, for common people. Um, just let's start from here. Well, I think that uh, back pain is one of the co most common uh, musculoskeletal disorders that people encounter today. Um, it is so, so pervasive that uh, as a trainer, personal coach, um, or rehabilitation expert, uh, you're, you're faced with it uh, on a daily basis. Um, and we both know why that is. Obviously, the yeah. office environment is a huge factor. And now with home office, uh, for some, it's uh, an opportunity to manage their postures, motions, and loads wisely um, without the scrutiny of, of peers' eyes. Um, but for others, it's very destructive because it just ends yeah. up, you know, meaning that you, you're working uh, off of your couch or beanbag all day, which, which can be uh, a disaster waiting to happen. Um, sure. So obviously, back pain is a huge, huge issue nowadays. Uh, in the corporate world, especially, and a lot of our clients, you know, they're uh, leaders in their given industries, they're CEOs, they're managers, they own companies. So they sit for long periods of time, they travel, uh, they spend a lot of time in uh, postures, uh, motions and loads, which uh, do not uh, support healthy backs. So this kind of education, I think, is fundamental. And also, um, it's surprising to me that it's not given at an elementary school level. Um, I'm sure you would agree with me that although in school we get relatively good sport coaching, whether it be playing basketball or football or um, uh, track and field, et cetera, but nobody actually takes the time in the beginning to teach these kids how to stand, how to walk, how to sit, how to manage their posture, what does is, what is good posture mean, um, how to actually... Um, Mitigate tissue stress, you know, when you're mm -hmm. studying and sitting at home for a long period of time. Um, this isn't given, you know, so a lot of kids, you know, they'll come true. in and it's not, that, it's not that they cannot hip hinge, it's that they've never done it before. So their, their brain isn't used to it. They'll just flex. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And going a little bit deeper in technical aspects, um, could you just unlight a bit uh, uh, the two or three main reasons why this part of the body so the back or the so-called core uh are are so important uh, because you know if you if you type on google core training you found everything so what is core uh is not that easy to define or at least it's, it is not that easy to be coherent okay so what is for you what is for me uh so just some details 
okay, more about, about what is the core, why is so important for you, and why do you think people should really start to think about this part of the body as probably the, the most crucial one? And, you know, the, already the fact of defining it core, I think it's pretty meaningful, not, not just mechanically speaking. Right. So let's start with the word, because a lot of this comes down to semantics um, and nomenclature, doesn't it? So yeah. the, the word core actually is defined uh, as center. So it's, it's the center of your body, number one. That also means that your core is the center of your mass as far as movement is concerned, right? If I were to stand like this parallel and lift one leg, I'm going to fall off to the side. Why? Because my center of mass, which is just here below my navel, is going to shift because I'm lacking support on one side. Therefore, if I shift my center of mass over to one foot, I can lift the other one without the penalty of falling. So um, in terms of movement, there's this aspect of a shifting center of mass, which makes movement more efficient and powerful and so on. Um, on another level, spiritually, you always see that people in uh, various ancient traditions, especially in martial arts, they focus on what's called hara, or your center, mm -hmm. which is your will center. So psychologically speaking, your will uh, is, is collecting here. Um, it also happens to be the visceral area, which is really interesting. From your perspective as an osteopath, you will hear me loud and clear when I say that this is where all the magic happens. This is where you hold your enteric nervous system. This is where you assimilate the energy that you've put into your mouth. So the solar plaques and so on. I'm sorry? The solar plaques and so on. So many structures Absolutely. there, so important. So, so for me, this is, you know, a, a let's say, um, port of arrival of nutrition, which we put into the mouth. And this is coming from the environment that we live in, ideally. Um, and so that environment that nourishes our physical being through assimilation of those nutrients. So that philosophically is a really beautiful cyclical relationship of interdependence with the natural world. So sure. philosophically, the core has a lot of meaning in terms of our own physiology and, and building up of our tissues and, and our self and our experience in that environment. And then, of course, um, you know, as we defecate, we give back to the earth, uh, which then mm -hmm. in turn means better harvest and healthier animals and plants and so on. So, again, a cyclical nature um, and, and center of mass from a, you know, um, kinesiology perspective or a biomechanics perspective. And then, of okay. course, we've got this idea of resilience and protection. So you have this, you know, what, what the Chinese might call an uh, iron shirt, which supports and protects all of those organs and those life, vital life systems. Um, and, and that's where, you know, we get into Stuart McGill's work. Professor Stuart McGill talks about mm -hmm. the core as a guy wire system where you've got, you know, your, your uh, pelvic floor and diaphragm as a piston with the intra-abdominal air pressure. Around this, you've got your transverse abdominis, you've got your inner and outer obliques and the abdominal wall, creating a, a number of, of layers of, um, you know, as you know, fascia and muscle and so on. And sure. so when they contract in unison, in perfect coordination within the <clears throat> environment of a uh, vertical posture or a, let's say, an aligned neutral posture, you get this sort of reciprocal effect whereby the strength and resilience of the entirety of your core from all the layers is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And so that's, sure. that's what we call the guy wire system, which, which gives stability to the spine, 
um, which is kind of like a mast on a boat being attached to the rest of the structures, in our case, the pelvis and the ribcage. Um, and again, it's about a, a unison. Think of a, think of a symphony. There's a number of instruments that have to be in sync in order for the symphony to be beautiful music. Sure. And the function of the chorus is very much the same. It's not about the trumpet versus the piano versus you know, the harp being more, uh, more important. It's about their integration um, and the way that they actually uh, function in unison. So that's, that's kind of an analogy for uh, the function of core musculature. I really I love this analogy. I really love this analogy. I really love this analogy. I, I think oh, I will use it with my customers very soon. Thank you. That, that's nice. That's symphony. Yeah, that's nice. Well, you know, this is this is the great thing about having conversations such as ours, um, because there are little things you'll hear that are a very short way to explain to people what you're trying to get at without getting too technical. <clears throat> is a lot of the time an example is is perfect for that. Sure, sure. And listen, so in terms of um, back pain, uh, you are a personal coach, very, very highly qualified and, but, but you are, you, but I would say you are a coach. I mean, today, um, it's, uh, I think the, the belief, it's still a bit uh, uh, that the fact that you have back pain, you need to see a doctor, you know what I mean? Or maybe a therapist. I don't know if you agree with this point, but, but I really think it's still too, uh, too easy to, to, to see around as this kind of approach, no? I have back pain, okay? Uh, orthopedics or a medical doctor uh, or, you know, or chiropractor or osteopath. And you know, I'm an osteopath, so I'm not against this, but I'm absolutely a supporter of the fact that exercise is crucial to prevent and to heal. Uh, but yeah, my first question is, uh, do you think this is true? No, the fact that the belief is still not, uh, uh, not so aligned with the reality uh, in, in one way. And the second question is, why exercise is so important? Uh, to prevent and heal uh, low back pain. Okay, so those are two big uh, loaded questions. Let's see. Okay, um, we have time. Where, <laughs> where do I start? Um, so in terms of the, the, the medical world and this sort of uh, understanding that this is the place to go, um, I, I believe it should be. I, I believe it should be the way that, you know, I have pain, I go to the doctor, the doctor will point me in the right direction. And many do, and many know um, what their wheelhouse of experience is and when to reach out and ask another professional for help. Um, so the, the issue a lot of the time is the limitation of time. So imagine the, uh, the average person, they have back pain, they have no clue what's going on. They go to the doctor, the doctor has not received a biomechanical um, understanding of the causes and specific triggers of pain. Um, or they have been. If they have been, you've got a better chance of success. But if they haven't been, chances are you'll receive an analgesic to relieve your pain in good intent. Of course, this is a short-term um, solution, as everybody knows. So then you, you, know, you continue going about life in 3D and using your body um, less than uh, appropriately, and your pain remains. So um, you seek out, obviously, a movement specialist. That's the obvious thing to do. But many people may 
not be pointed towards that movement specialist. So they might be told, well, why don't you go get a, you know, a, a, an imaging a study of your back? And then you'll go and lie down in, in, in the MRI machine or in the CT or whatever it is. And they take a picture and they show you the picture and they either see something or they do not see something that is wrong with the spine. Now, we know very well that it may or may not correlate to actual pain. So Absolutely. in other words, in other words, you could see a spine which has, you know, uh, some sort of um, uh, changes. Let's call it um, uh, age. Let's call it um, use. Let's call it, uh, you know, we don't like words like degradation or, or um, <laughs> degeneration because, yeah. you know, that is akin to calling the wrinkles uh, degeneration whereby um, it's just age and character and beauty. Right? Exactly. Maybe experience. It's physiology. So, and physiology, the system is actually changing but not for the worse it's changing and adapting in order to function in a slightly different way uh, for the rest of your life so um, there you know the body is uh, constantly fluid and changing as you know um, it's never stiff and it's never rigid and it's never uh, unchanged it's always getting better or worse yeah. but anyway let's say let's say you get a picture and you see that there's something wrong with the spine uh, chances are if you're talking to an orthopedic they've been taught how to cut out your pain and they mean to help you. So inevitably, sure. you're going to reach into their toolbox, which is maybe a surgical procedure, in order to help you. The question, the question begs itself, does that person have the tools to help you prevent surgery? And is it in their, let's say, interest, career interest, to do so? Or are they going to do their job using the skills that they were taught? It's, it's obviously the latter. Um, and some of them will say, well, why don't you go try some physical therapy or why don't you go, you know, they'll see something random like, like, why don't you go try some yoga or some Pilates or, or functional training or whatever it is. They may have an idea of what that means for that individual, or they may just generally give advice, which seem to have helped somebody else. Sure. Um, what often, what is often lacking is that individualization of matching that person's genesis of pain to the activity that will help them um, actually get over their, um, their, their issues. So sure. you get this picture where there's something wrong or you get a picture where there's nothing wrong and yet the person's in severe pain. What do you do with that, right? That's obviously the case where you need to go and you need to put your hands on somebody. You need to you know, gently prod and you need to pull, maybe traction, maybe move somebody's limb and see what's happening. And then converse with them and understand, um, is this helping? Is this making it worse? Let's talk in a very simplistic language. Is it better, worse, or same when I do this? Okay, how about that? Did that put you into discomfort? Let's not go all the way to pain, but did that make you uncomfortable? Okay, here we go. Let's change the position. Did that now take away your pain? Yes. Okay, we've now confirmed the mechanism, which was a hypothesis in my mind, causing your pain. So the, the importance of assessment, right? The, the, the I, I think the importance of passive, assessment and assessing the function, right? right? And not, I would also expand that by saying not just assessment in the classical sense of I've done my assessment, I've taken my notes and I think I know what's going on with this person, but it's a live assessment, meaning they're involved. So they're actually experiencing what you're explaining to them in real time. And you're showing them when you do this, it doesn't feel good, but when you do that, it feels better. Do more of this and less of that for now. Simple. Sure. That way, when you finish, the person can leave. They know what not to do, which is 
sometimes just as important, if not more important than what to do. They also know what to do, and they know how to explain to their family in a layman language what it is that's happening to them and how they're going to resolve it. And that's what we want from you know, an, a proper assessment and an experience with uh, an individual that comes to us with back pain. Sure, yeah, something uh, I always keep uh, uh, repeating uh, in, in, in this podcast, but every day in my, in my professional uh, practice is that awareness and knowledge will save us, no? or will save our customers and patients. And I think it's a bit what you're saying, but the fact of being able to listen to your body and to interpret uh, the signals and to, and to understand more and, and to have the, the, the knowledge and the skills to prevent pain uh, and, to, and to respect uh, that perfect or almost perfect machine that your body is. Right. Uh, as long as that understanding, knowledge, and skill sets are actually applied in a reasonable way to lead to that positive adaptation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Understanding is critical. Okay, yes. And, you know, you, you have just talked about something which is very important to me uh, in, uh, in the relation with my patients. Um, you talked a bit about uh, imaging, you know, and what I think about imaging is that a very powerful resource, of, and that's so obvious. But at the same time, uh, it has a kind of uh, uh, dark side. Why? Because I see pretty often in my practice, people as an osteopath mainly coming to me and as first thing they do, they don't talk about how they feel uh, as a person, as an individual, how they feel in terms of pain. But the first thing, I have an herniated disc. You know what I mean? And, and I think they that own, their own, their diagnosis. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that when it happens, they really become passive in a way. So they, they, really, they really think I can do nothing. Just you as a therapist or a medical doctor can do something uh, because, because this is the reason why. But what actually happens very often, this is in my experience, is that yes, that disc is herniated but it has nothing or almost nothing to, to do with uh, your pain uh, because it's not that easy. So I don't think what you think about that, but this is something so important. And every time I, I dedicate a few minutes in my, in my meetings uh, to, to, to share this thing with, uh, with my patients. Right. Well, the, the first thought here is that, you know, I, I would love to explain to these people that um, change is bi-directional. So it's not, you're not only going one way in life. And if you have any sort of genesis of pain, chances are you earned it over time. And, you know, we don't mean this in any way to put anybody down. It's what, what, we, what we're trying to say is that you earned it through your management or mismanagement of your own postures, motions, and loads. Um, it's not very often that the actual diagnosis helps to direct the therapy. And that is really the key. If you're going to get an assessment, a, an imaging study, or an opinion from a professional, you would at least hope that their 
let's say, conclusions help direct your therapy. But with imaging studies alone, that's rarely the case because you get some very generalized uh, wording or description like uh, discopathy or you know degeneration of something. Sure. And well, what am I supposed to do with that? It just means that I'm, I'm broken or I'm faulty or you know I can no longer do and enjoy the things that I once did before. It's almost suggestive subliminally when yeah. someone gives you diagnosis of that. And yet, you know, osteopaths, um, chiropractors, uh, martial arts geeks, whatever, we all have one thing in common, and that is this idea of vitalism. Sure. That the body is inherently programmed to improve itself and adapt in order to thrive. Now, that being said, it needs the right conditions, the right exactly. mindset, the right environment, and all of the inputs that are required to, as a stimulus to achieve a positive adaptation. And sure. that's the one uh, you're speaking I, with the people who are paying. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And listen, I know I'm posing you a very difficult question, but um, if you would have three, four bullet points to convince people why exercising in a good way, in general, exercising is good to prevent primary prevention, secondary prevention. If you want, you can share with us something about the, the difference, okay, of the two kinds of preventions. But why exercising is so important to prevent low back pain? Three, four bullet points. So um, there has to be a very simplistic and rational way to explain the necessity of exercise. And it should be quite obvious. Movement is loading. Loaded tissue responds with positive adaptations as long as the load is appropriate, meaning not too little, which will not cause an adaptation, nor too much, which will degrade tissue or break it down. We need to find that exact point between minimal effective dose and maximal recover recoverable volume. That's where the magic happens, and that's very individual. Everybody has different capacities, different <laughs> tissue tolerance. So it's a matter of finding the magic elixir for that person, which is why Professor McGill calls this both an art and science. The art is in understanding the human being behind the process, and the science is the understanding of adaptation of tissue and the mechanisms of injury. But it's, it's very simple to explain to people this way. If you get an operation and you lay in your bed for a month, when you get up, you'll feel quite weak. Why is that? And the answer is obvious because we haven't loaded the system. So therefore, we actually regressed in our resilience, capacity, and so on. Sure. Sure. A lot of people take, for example, uh, walking for granted, walking or running, right? Everybody can do it. It's natural for, you know, it's, we got it from evolution and it's a natural sort of state sure. for the human physiology to walk and run. I don't have to think about this, you see, contralateral, no problems. The question is, have you been doing it optimally for years and do you do it every day optimally? In this, in this case, let's not even think about it. But in the event that you've been sitting behind a desk, for some time and your tissues have changed the elastic balance and now you take that body and you start walking it and instead of this you've got this now walking has become a problem and it's actually causing you pain 
Sure. So the, the, the reason for exercise is to find appropriate movement, which will stimulate the adaptation or adaptive process in our body to create general resilience that we require for our activities, those being life. So for me, I'm approaching somebody's grandma as an Olympic athlete, except her game is not lifting a heavy weight or sprinting fast or throwing an implement. Her game is being able to get up and out of a chair, walk to the store, do some shopping, play with her grandkids, maybe do a little bit of um, pottery or uh, gardening in the, in the afternoon and enjoy her life pain-free and fully involved with it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for interrupt you, but I really love this last part of, of your uh, of your intervention, and uh, and I think that this, so this little story about what our grandma needs um, is the only probably uh, definition of what they call functional training. If you if you type functional training on your Google search bar, you can find everything and nothing at the same time, you know? And sometimes you're really, oh my God. So, and I really think that this thing that you have just shared with us is the perfect way to define what is functional training for me. And so probably for you Excel, so to, as well. So to, yeah, to train functions. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, um, it's actually our clients who become our teachers in what is functional for them, right? So yeah. Professor McGill, uh, you know, he has many decades talking about these topics. And so what I really enjoy about him is that he's really uh, has a very specific uh, wording and specific sort of examples that he uses over and over to get the point across. And he, he has something that he says about training um, for a task. He basically says, you look at where the person is, what their capacities and their tolerances are. You look at where they need to be, whether it be gardening or whether it be a full-on UFC MMA battle, sure. whatever it is, and you train the difference. And that's it. You catalog what you need. You look at what you have and you train the difference appropriately. So you get positive adaptations without um, you know, degradating tissue. This is really the basis of the work. Okay, okay. And listen, um... Talking about low back pain or back pain in general, uh, I'm really curious to, to have your uh, opinion about what do you think about low back pain or back pain and ergonomics? Uh, because, you know, I, I've just published an episode of Vibes in Action, uh, which title, whose title was uh, Ergonomics Won't Save You, no? Try, try really to uh, talk about the false myth of ergonomics, clarifying that ergonomics can be something absolutely good, uh, but it, it's not the only thing uh, which matters. So in a few words, I, I really would like to, to, to know what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I um, actually just listened to that podcast on the way in this morning, and I'm, I'm completely in sync with what you said there. Um, I will start with this. The environment is indeed important if we want to set up our tools in such a way that our body is in a given alignment. There's no question about that. If I'm spending eight hours plus in this position, you know, there's more than 20 kilos sitting on my neck right now just because I'm looking down. And that's not a problem. We're designed for that. 
But if I, you know, do that for eight, 10 hours a day for multiple days, it becomes a problem. So it's a cumulative nature. Sure. So uh, with ergonomics, it's a study of the actual environment that we're working within and trying to optimize that environment to mitigate or minimize tissue stress. That's a reasonable train of thought and I'm uh, behind it hundred percent. We often have our uh, clients pick up their computers or uh, change postures and, and motions throughout the day as they work at home nowadays. Uh, you've spoken about this uh, quite eloquently. Um, so so okay. this is you know basically our basis of work. However, to your point, uh, ergonomics itself will not work because you could have the world's best ergonomic chair designed by experts based on decades of experience. And yet, if you have someone sitting in it who doesn't know how to sit and use that tool, they're going to fail. And so with Professor McGill, um, you know, he's coined this term evolving ergonomics. Mm -hmm. And what this basically means is a classic ergonomic study with the added value of the people actually learning how to use their body, what constitutes resilience, how loading over time works, teaching them and giving them the tools to actually be able to manage their own postures and motion and load over time in order to arrive at a positive adaptation versus pain. So it is uh, an education and it is also a physical discipline or physical habit, which these people are required to perform on a daily basis. It's called the non-negotiable daily back hygiene or spine hygiene. Um, and the big three basic exercises from the, for the front side and, and rear of the core. This is basically uh, a way for these people to mitigate their tissue stress throughout the day. So it might mean, I'll give you an example, the person, a very simple example, the person sitting there like this, every hour on the hour, they'll get up and they'll put their hands up towards the ceiling and they will simply mitigate their tissue stress in the opposite direction for a very short time. And they'll go back to work. That in itself gives them a little bit more room or capacity to withstand the tissue stress associated with sitting. Yeah, yeah, and okay, so this concept of uh, back hygiene is something I really like. I, I found it on, on your website and you are now mentioning it again. And, uh, and yeah, so uh, my question here uh, is, uh, what are in a way the pillars uh, even in terms of, of knowledge and in terms of content. So you, you are discussing with a, with a client, uh, you know, back hygiene is important for uh, all the reasons you have just shared with us. Uh, but what, are, what do you need to do as a client? Then it's specific, uh, it's uh, individual. So just give us an idea of the two, three, four pillars uh, that you share with your patients, knowing that uh, an individual approach is always the thing people need. Actually, I, I thought about this question earlier, um, and I actually wrote down this morning, just off the top of my head, I wrote down a kind of quick uh, definition of how I would explain back hygiene, okay? Mm -hmm. Here it goes. Back hygiene is a modulation of motion and load over time to mitigate tissue stress and prevent injury. It is an ability to use one's own body optimally, causing positive adaptations. So you asked me about fundamental pillars, right? Pillars to build, let's say, a program uh, of back hygiene. Posture awareness, number one, because that influences the way that uh, muscles coordinate and activate. 
um, sufficient resilience. So we say sufficient because I don't need to be, you know, Superman. I just need to be resilient enough that when I open a door, that door doesn't pull on my spine. That I can sure. develop enough stiffness of my core to support my spine so that I'm moving objects as opposed to the objects moving me. Sufficient mobility and stability in the right places. More is not better in every case, right? We need a, a certain amount of balance between uh, tension and uh, freedom to move. And movement quality, first and foremost. So um, training functional global movement patterns and teaching the person to coordinate the articulated linkage, which is our body, is of utmost importance. And then finally, what I've written down here is consistent and cyclical loading. So load management over time, meaning light days, heavier days, this kind of movement, that kind of movement, um, and most importantly, suitable movement for the context of your actual life. So considering all the stressors that we're exposed to, choosing the ones that are going to help us with those positive adaptations as opposed to steal our uh, energy and prowess. So I hope that that's nice. No, it's it's very, very nice. And I think it's it could be very, very useful for, for our listeners. Uh, it's something very, very practical, I think. And, and so uh, this could be uh, probably my, my last question. Uh, but I'm, I'm so interested in knowing how do you deal with uh, motivation? Uh, what, I, what I mean is you, you talk about back hygiene, right? So, so you need to share with people these, uh, uh, this need that you have to take care of yourself um, during their uh, everyday life, right? So I, I think you prescribe some homework uh and exercises or or practices they they need to 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 do every day for a couple of minutes i don't know maybe you, you can explain something about that so my sure. first question okay so you you confirmed it to me uh so given that um how do you deal with the the motivational aspect because what i what i think is that in my in our uh practice um the fact of convincing people that what they can do for their well-being is crucial and is huge uh, pass by this passes by this um, uh, this concept of you can do a lot if you are consistent if you do it on your own okay me I'm your therapist I'm your coach I'm so happy to work with you okay but uh, but you can't rely exclusively on me and you, no. and you need commitment and you need to work hard uh, on that, okay? But you need to motivate them. So how do you do? That's, a, that's another fantastic question, uh, David. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, first of all, what I'm hearing here is that you and I are dealing with the problematic of outsourcing. And what I mean by that is people oftentimes outsource responsibility to professionals in order to um, you know, arrive at a, at a desired state. What I mean by that is people will come in to a therapist's office and say, give me a treatment. Uh, I'm going to lay here passively. I want you to take responsibility for my pain. I want you to make me better. 
And this is ultimately why a lot of therapy fails. It's not that the therapist did not do their job correctly. And I, this is one of the first things I tell people when they come through my door. Um, did it help? Did you feel better? Yes. How long did it last? Three days. What did you do between leaving their office and now? Well, I went to work. Something you're doing at work is hurting you. It's not the therapist. They didn't fail you. They had one hour versus sure. eight hours of the following workday multiplied by seven days that week, let's say, right? Sure. So that puts the onus on them and the responsibility in their hands to, again, manage their postures, motions, and loads over time in order to support their therapist's work. It's a, a, a cooperation, if you will. The therapist or the trainer is there to educate, to give solutions and tips and some homework, as you said, do their job in terms of bringing the body back to a structural balance. And that's wonderful to do. So motivation requires that the person really has a sense of ownership as far as the process is concerned. I need to give them the tools in order to be able to do their consistent homework every single day. And they need to understand their, the, the requirement of their buy-in and their consistent effort, right? That doesn't mean I have to kill the client. Uh, killing the client is the easiest thing that a trainer can do. But um, we're trying to equip them with the understanding of how what they're doing at home uh, is actually complementing what we're doing together here. So one of the ways that I motivate people is uh, to use examples of uh, successes. And I will often point to the fact that the people were very determined and consistent in their daily uh, homework. This is the number one fundamental aspect which is going to help uh, beyond any sort of therapy and any sort of intervention. So um, the number one uh, function or the number one role that I see us having is an educator, uh, informing the people, and then also uh, simply just uh, being that person that they have uh, some sort of accountability to. So I often say quite humbly that at least 50% of our effect as a coach, a trainer, or a therapist is simply watching them do their work. Mm -hmm. They have an appointment, they show up, and they execute. And it's ultimately always about execution. And as our cooperation goes on, we try to make them independent of us in the execution of those appropriately chosen tools in order for them to get better. That is the, yeah. ultimate, the ultimate goal to make a client um, basically not need us anymore. That is where we really feel success. And it's kind of funny because, you know, just last week I had a conversation. Oh, hey, I haven't seen you for a little bit. Um, you know, should I be keeping open time for you or should I not be? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Hey, it sounds like you found a nice routine for yourself and you don't need me anymore. That's fantastic. That's great. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what happened. You don't have to be uncomfortable about that. Just call sure. me when you need me. That's great, sure. that's, I've done my job, it's fantastic, great. And you know what? That person will send you another 10 people. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm totally with you. Critical. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you with that. Uh, sure. And, and listen, um, when it turns to um, homework, so a practice that, uh, that people need to do on their own, uh, the fact of uh, showing them what they need to do, how they need to do a specific exercise or a practice uh, is crucial, I think. So, uh, I know that uh, you have a new project, which I find so interesting. So if you want to share it with us, something about uh, training up. So I'm, I'm curious. 
if, if you can sure. share something with us. Sure, sure. So I'll reveal our um, new project that's actually about to be released next week. Um, but before that, I'll give you a bit of background. So when I started uh, working with Professor McGill, I quickly realized that he has done so much work in being able to uh, simplify this information for the end user, um, you know, for the, the, the average layman. And um, you're, I'm sure you're aware of his books, uh, Low Back Disorders and uh, Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. Um, the latest and smallest book, uh, actually not the latest anymore, but the, the smallest book for the lay population is called Back Mechanic. And we had yeah. the great pleasure of releasing this book in Czech Republic. Um, oh, wow. As well as in Poland and um, actually doing some of the uh, corrections for it. Um, the reason that we did that is because nice. this book struck me as genius in its simplicity. And in fact, Professor McGill talks about that it was actually the most difficult project for him because, you know, being a scientist, he goes into the depths of the topic. But to make it accessible for people, he built, basically wrote this book, which is um, about what, 160 pages or so. And it's basically uh, everything you need to know about mechanisms of pain, the most, uh, let's say, common uh, causes of pain, how to test yourself and what to do about it. And so all of these basic spine hygiene tools, as well as uh, the big three non-negotiables are in there. And by that, we get great results because when later on, when they go through the book, they realize, oh, this is what he was talking about. Oh, and this is the principle. That's why he asked me that question. So this has really been a great help. And, uh, and sorry, Paul, this is, this is obviously available in English as well for our audience. Right, so Back Mechanic is available in English. Uh, in Europe, you can order these at uh, Back Fit Pro. Uh, there's a link on our website to Mark Beavers in Europe. He uh, sells the English version. Um, uh, I'm responsible for the Czech and Polish versions in this region. Um, and so this is a great, great work that's really helped our, uh, our process. Now, that being said, Oftentimes, we were having a situation where the person left that day, perfect form, knowing exactly what they're going to do, and they come back to us. I like to see a person after the initial consult for an additional, let's say, two months, once a week. More or less, more or less 10 hours total. The reason for that is most often people will come back and they'll say, yeah, you know, that exercise wasn't really for me or uh yeah it was good it was good for a few days but then it got a little worse and now i'm a little bit triggered and you know some of these people are quite sensitized and they have a very low margin um, for error and then i'll say well show me your routine and, I, and i'll step back and i'll just i'll, I'll watch and sure. inevitably they're out of place on one of the exercises there's a disbalance in the exercise their leg is too high they're driving themselves into hyperextension their head is dropping the shoulder blades are not stable whatever and i always tell them it's not about the exercises it's about how you execute the exercises and what's in here, right? Um, so so I'll, I'll teach them again and I'll use an external cue so that they can cue themselves at home, for example. And then they'll go and then they'll come back and then they'll do you know, the same mistake. And I'll say, well, what, you know, what, what happened? I just showed you this external cue. Oh, I forgot about that. Years of this literally led us to the point where we said, I need to have a resource whereby that person has the most important points right in front of their face when they need it. And that led us to build an app. So the app Good. is super simple. It is the ultimate Mickey Mouse app. There's nothing okay. fancy, there's no fancy function, functions, there's nothing. You download the thing for free and it's, come, it's coming out next week. It's called the Advanced Training App. And you, there's basically two sections side by side. 
One is basically a section of free tips, hints, and tricks. These are just very generalized sort of principles, techniques, or tools that will help a paint person or a person just sort of learning about their body or starting out uh, as a layman. Again, our audience is the lay population, so I'm not trying to show off about my knowledge in front of the training community. Sure. And I'm not showing, trying to show how many ways can I, you know, train and how many exercises do I know and then, you know, this is about the added value that we can send our clients away with when they finish working with us. So sure. uh, essentially we wanted something for, we wanted something in the palm of these people, people's hand that will remind them of the fine details of the form as they're trying to execute on their daily non-negotiables. And so we thought, well, obviously not, because most of the time when this happens, we take a video, we speak to the video and, and we tell them the fine uh, points that they need to keep an eye on or keep uh, their mind on, and then uh, we send them away. Um, well, I thought, well, wouldn't it be easier instead of writing, you know, an, or creating Excel spreadsheets at 11.30 at night after a 15-hour day, um, wouldn't it be easier to just go into a back, uh, you know, a, a back end and just go click, drag, click, drag, click, drag, certain exercises that I know are appropriate for that individual. And on their end, you know, they hit their phone and it just opens up and it's right there. And it's in a one minute format. So you, you, you are, you know, a few seconds, you see an exercise done, you see a movement, it takes 10 seconds. And then there's a short paragraph description as to the cueing that the person has to keep in mind. So they can execute nice. by looking at the photos and seeing our, uh, you know, the volume and the rep count that we filled in from our side. Um, they can just execute it. There's a little timer in it. Um, or, you know, they can click on the video to remind themselves if they had forgotten the exercise. So that, that was the only uh, purpose behind this app. And so we've now got, you know, hundreds of exercises on our end. The person doesn't get those exercises when they download the app. They only get the actual tips and hints. But when they engage in a one hour consult with us, we've now understood who they are, how their body functions, sure, and, uh, we, and what they want to achieve, right? Those are the main fundamental pillars. Based on this, we can actually program as a coach the appropriate and time conducive tools to reach those adaptations. So in other words, think of an average app. You go in, you put in your age, your height, your weight, your subjective, uh, you know, assessment of your own, uh, you know, fitness level, and boom, you get your customized, individualized program. And that's great. And there's many great apps like that out there. And we're not even trying to compete against those because our approach is that of human contact, and then a little bit of automation. Yeah, sure. No, I think it is a very smart and, and idea, and, and I think it will be a success. So congrats for, for this, uh, this well, uh, new project. Uh, one last thing, if, yeah. I could, if I could just uh, make sure. mention. You know, there's, in our space, um, there, there are a lot of disciplines. There's a strength and condition world. There's a personal training and functional training and, uh, and therapy, uh, various modalities of therapy. Um, I just, I just really feel that we need to be talking to one another the way that we just did today uh, and having productive conversations, having constructive conversations. And most importantly, we need to focus on what we have in common, because the sure. one thing is that we are trying to enhance lives. And oftentimes there's so much scuttlebutt over, you know, what's the best methodology? Is it, is it this type of therapy versus that type of therapy? And this is really, for me, um, an area of irritation because it misses the point. It, it misses the context completely. Um, okay. And trying to justify one way over another 
we, we really miss out on the clinical and um, scientific rationale and reason. Um, as we've mentioned, there's many tools. When the tool matches the actual uh, genesis or dysfunction, uh, the genesis of pain or dysfunction, then you've got success. If you pull out the wrong tool for the job, you have no success. This, you know, that, that has nothing to do with uh, uh, approaches. So uh, one of the reasons I was really uh, drawn to Professor McGill's work is that it was born of a scientific uh, endeavor, uh, looking into function and observing um, really with no initial intent for clinical practice, but consequently over the years, as um, questions were asked and answered um, in the clinical world, it became, a, let's call it a methodology um, but, but really, it was a scientific endeavor. And this is really important that we keep that in our minds as professionals, that uh, there is a wheelhouse of experience based on what we've done. And then uh, when we get beyond that, uh, you know, having, having the character to tell someone, I don't know, yes. but I, I know a guy who does. And let me pick up the phone right now and we'll get the answer for you. And together, you're going to... Um, do a lot better in a very short space of time. We'll shortcut your process. That's what our industry really uh, desperately misses. Um, we need to unify and sort of, um, you know, understand that we are a community uh, that is much, vastly more similar uh, in, in, in principle than we think, despite yeah, a variety of sure. techniques and approaches. Thanks a lot for this exciting chat. It was so nice for me. Uh, I really think it can be useful for our, uh, for my and our audience. Uh, and uh, and it was so so nice. And I really had good time. Me as a friend and as a professional, it's always so inspiring to to share information or uh, uh, or, or or other kind of stuff uh, around our work, which is our passion as well. So, so yeah, thanks yeah, a lot from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, you know, last time we spoke at uh, Dr. Craig Liebenson's um, yes. uh, schooling here in Prague, I, I immediately understood that uh, you are of the same uh, mind and spirit and um, your heart is in the right place and you're willing to do the work. Um, and you give it your all. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely honored to be here speaking to you today. It was a great pleasure. I hope that some of the things and topics that we touched on today could help inspire or motivate uh, our listeners. Thanks a lot again, Paul. And uh, so hopefully see you soon in person. All the best and likewise, uh, looking forward to having you here in Prague. Sure, with pleasure. Bye-bye, Paul. Bye-bye.